This is HPR episode 1701 entitled, Fostum 2015 Part 4 of 5. It is hosted by Ken Fallon and is about 43 minutes long. The summary is, Agora Voting, D-Book Scanner, Open Embedded, Amateur Radio, Cody formerly XBMC. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Okay, this is Ken. We've just done Doodoo uh, Linux, and now we've come next door to something that is not related at all, and that's Agora Voting. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And you are? I'm Eduardo Robles. And what, tell me a little bit about this project, because I'm actually quite interested in it. Okay, well, this project started uh, around five years ago. Um, our idea is that we, want, we needed a voting system that is uh, secure because uh, it started in a, politi- a small political party in Spain that wanted to go to the elections and since then we have been, well we, we made the project independent uh, as it's up and now we are running a company based on this voting voting system called Agora Voting and it's been used in Spain mostly uh, by political parties and we have had uh, elections well quite big elections with more than a hundred thousand votes already. Okay, and is this using voting machines or are you uh, voting over the internet? Um, mostly voting over internet. It could be used as an electronic voting system, not via internet but electronic, but uh, for now it has been used only for uh, e-voting, internet voting. And how do, you, uh, how do you verify that the person who's voting is voting? How do you verify that the person that's voting has voted? Uh, how do you verify the fact that you don't know who their political party is? How do you maintain anonymity? And how do you do traceability? Those are many questions I, I would try to answer. Take one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the first thing is that the, the software is flexible, uh, it's modular, so uh, we are not the ones that tell you as an organization which authentication system you need to use so uh, we tell you which authentication systems exist and which are the advantages security advantages and for example usability disadvantages uh, of different both authentication systems and then as an organization you have to choose so for example you send somebody a four-digit ID in the post or uh, what, what are my options there well, uh, you could. We have used a range of uh, authentication systems. For example, uh, one very easy and not very, not very good, but it works is via email with an e- email link. That that's one system. We have also uh, used e- electronic identity cards because we have that in Spain. Uh, but the problem with them is that uh, they are not very usable. 
it's difficult to use. You need a card reader, etc. You need to remember the pin code of something you have probably not never used. Uh, and then we have used, for example, SMS code uh, sent to your mobile phone, so we at least verify that that mobile phone is yours. Uh, we have even used a scanned uh, IDs or a photo, photo that you send to the system and then a set of administrators verify. So the, the election is yours. You have to choose. And may, if we don't support uh, the authentication system that you want to use, then we just we can add support for it. Okay. Yeah. And so then we know who's voting. So uh, what's the next step? Well, the next step... Uh, depends on if you, if you are voting. The, the 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 important thing about the software is that it is uh, fully verifiable, end-to-end -end verifiable. So you can verify how how good uh, if if the if, when you vote, if the ballot is currently codified and it's currently encrypted, because that's one of the questions when you are using a machine. If it is working properly, right? Yeah. Well, you, there is a, the Agora Verifier, which is a piece of software that you can use to verify this, and you can you can execute it in another machine if you think the, your machine is compromised, etc. And then you send your ballot to the ballot box, electronic ballot box, and then you can check that the, your ballot has been correctly cached and is in the ballot box. You can search your ballot using the locator, which is a hash of a, like a photo of the of, your, of the ballot and then there is a process or a tally process when you, when the election stops then the tally process begins and actually the ballots are encrypted the, for uh, for us it's very important the privacy of the vote not even us as a, as election administrators that have, that have access to the ballot box for example not even us can have access to the uh, to the, the plain text of the ballot. It's, it's impossible for us because it's encrypted with a key that is owned partially by different authorities, election authorities, we call it. It's similar. And then the tally process is run by uh, the, these election authorities because they have the keys of the of the election. Yeah. So, and, and the tally process is uh, in two steps. The first step is to anonymize the ballots. So we don't know we, we don't know uh, this ballot where it ca came from, and then when the ballots are anonymized, then they are decrypted, and then you can trivially uh, know the winner, right? Yeah. And the whole process is verifiable, so by anyone. That's that's why we call it. Well, it's called universally verifiable, and yeah. um, you can verify that the decryption was done correctly, even if you don't have access to the decryption keys. And you can verify that the anonymization process was correctly correctly done. And also, you, as I said, you can verify that your ballot is in this in this tally. So, it's so as a as a voter, I could verify each of the steps along the way as well. Exactly. Anyone can verify this tally, but as a voter, you can also verify. Uh, that's why that, that's why the the tally itself is universally verifiable. Even if you didn't vote, you can verify it. But also, uh, the voter can verify uh, personally that his vote or her vote was correctly cast, or was, was correctly encrypted and correctly codified. And the thing is that we didn't invent 
all this system where we are not reinventing the wheel. This is based on uh, more than 30 years of uh, research on uh, secure e-voting. So what we have done basically is use some software, for example, from the from Harvard, uh, so from other universities, and then what we have done is just bring this to the real world and in open source because there are other companies, for example, that have uh, similar voting systems, but because this is a bit complex, it's difficult, uh, they usually uh, need, if you want to use this software, you have to pay more than $100,000 just to do this kind of election. In our case, uh, it's open source, you can run it yourself, uh, or you can contact us if you want to do it professionally. Yeah. Yeah. So, how how are you getting to do the anonymous? How can I verify that I voted for person X and still have be assured that my vote is anonymous? Or uh, well, uh, you can verify that your ballots that. Uh, it may be even signed, uh, cryptographically signed, electronically signed. Your ballot is inside the, the ballot box, okay? Yeah. So your question is, if someone can know this is my ballot, and they can know that the content of the ballot, if I voted yes or no, for example, how, how does the tally work? How can you get the result, right? That's, yeah. that's the question. Well, uh, that's because you can, there are some mathematical properties of uh, cryptographic systems that allow to do something like, you have this ballot, we don't know the content, this other ballot, and you can sum the, the ballots, and then decrypt only the sum. Yeah, okay, that's fine. It's like a PGP message, I guess. Yeah. So you, you have an encrypted message, and you know that whatever's in there is hidden and I can verify that it was me. But at a certain point, that message, the encrypted part, is decoupled from the sender. Yeah? Yes. yes. It's going to have to be, because and now it goes into another bucket. So you have yes and no ones decrypted. So how do I... Am I... Do I know that between those two points that suddenly my no has turned to a yes? How do I... Can I verify it to the end? Well, there is a process that is called a mixnet, and, uh, and this is uh, a mixnet specifically wo uh, works by anonymizing the, uh, well, it shuffles the ballots and re-encrypt them in a way that uh, allows them to decrypt it only once. Okay, so basically it's more or less what I said. You can have two ballots, yeah. and one of the ballots, uh, for example, is, uh, imagine that they are numbers, because actually the, the encryption works with numbers, so the, the basic idea is that you can have two things, you can sum them, so they are anonymized, yeah. you, you cannot then decouple them, and then you can decrypt the result, okay? So, uh, this way you are anonymizing the, the content of the ballots, and then it's uh, secure to decrypt the, res the, the resulting encryption without knowing that this ballot is yours or this ballot because is... you've done the sum. Yeah, because because it's sum. So you. So but you, you still know that your ballot is in there. And of course, because yeah. you can sum. Anyone can sum the encrypted ballots. Yeah. Because okay. the result is also encrypted. Very good. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. You're giving a talk tomorrow on this, are you? Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow we are, I'm giving a lighting talk of 15 minutes. 
uh, in building, I don't know, in Ferrer room. Guys, thank you very much. What you're doing is good work. Uh, we need more of this. We've had enough people playing chess on voting machines. That needs to end. And uh, have a good FOSTEM. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. And we have come over to the AW building, the secret building with all the hacking stuff. And I'm now talking to... Johannes Weiter. And what are you here doing? You're beside the DIY book scanner. Uh, well, what, is, what are you here doing? I'm here doing with, with, the, with the project mainly. I try to see some talks, but I don't think I'll make it. Not a chance. So, no, no chance. Too many interested people. Yeah, so basically um, I'm trying to demo the, the book scanners that we are uh, presenting here, that we built. Um, and when you say book scanners, what exactly do you mean? Um, it's basically um, an uh, open hardware solution where you have a, um, how do I put it? You have an appliance where you have a cradle where you put the book in. You have a lever that lifts the cradle and presses it against the glass plate. And then so, so you're converting analog books yes. into digital? Yes, we do that. So the aim is basically, if you have a book that's not available in, in, in a digital format and you want to read it on your iPad, for example, that you have a low-cost solution that you can do at home to convert that, those paper, paper pages into digital images so you can OCR them, so you can uh, kind of put them through a screen reader if you're blind, for example, or just kind of copy and paste for your paper at the university. Okay, so I've... I have some study books and I run into the same situation that yeah. I don't want to be carrying them everywhere. I just yeah. want them, you know, you've got five minutes in the smallest room in the house, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and you want to be able to read the read a book. Exactly. But the pages always go a little bit fuzzy and scanny. So how have you fixed this problem? Um, we fixed this uh, in a lot of ways. For example, a usual problem you have is that the pages get warped. Yeah. If, you, if you take a picture with a digital camera, the inside of the page will kind of be uh, distorted because, it, because of the physical properties of a page. That's why we have this glass plate where the book is pressed against so the pages are flat. Let's walk over to yeah, it and sure. have a look. So we're standing beside a, um, we're standing beside a uh, MDF device, which is... Uh, how do I describe this? This is a picture that will be in the show notes. And he's... There's uh, the book is resting on a cradle at the bottom in a sort of V format. And the book is German, but it's got A, B, C, D, E, F. It's got the... book about typography, so... Okay, so example. excellent. For example, if you, would, if, you were to, if you wanted to scan this book yep. uh, with, a, with your phone, for example, you put it on the table, flat, yep. and then, then you would see that the inside of the page gets kind of distorted in, yes. in the image exactly. because of the... Because the whole thing is flat, yeah. Exactly. And your solution to this? That's why we have this cradle uh, in the scanner. So it's like a V-shaped cradle. It's a V-shaped cradle that's attached to a lift. Yeah. And you put the book in. You attach these, uh, the, um, I don't know how to... to So there are two planks at more or less 45 degrees. And they can go in and out, leaving enough space for thicker books. They can be adjusted. Yeah. So it fits the spine of the book. Yeah. And once you have it inside, you uh, push the lever... And, and the lever raises the V up exactly. to two glass plates. And pushes and pushes the pages against the glass plate. And it's also in a 45-degree uh, angle, yeah. or 90-degree angle in total. Yeah. Um, so you know, now you see 
the pages are very flat. Completely flat. Completely yeah. flat. And if you took a picture now, yeah. you could crop them very easily. And as in a PDF, it would look like the actual physical page. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that's basically what what we uh, the main goal of this project was to kind of to solve these problems. And um, as for the fuzziness, we have two digital cameras, so the yeah. pictures get taken by two consumer cameras. Yeah. So you can just hook any camera you have at home that can be controlled from a computer, put it into a scanner, hook it up to your PC where we have some software running that controls the, ca the scanner, the cameras, and then you can either set the focus manually, so you basically you measure the distance to the page, or you can take an initial measurement with the autofocus engine of the camera yeah. and lock it at that value. Yeah. So for every next capture, the focus will be locked at that position, so you won't get any fuzziness. Okay, because you're going to have a consistent distance between the exactly. glass plate exactly. and the camera. You're going to have consistent lighting conditions. Exactly. So the scanner is actually designed so that there's no reflection of the light that is at the top of the scanner on the, on the glass. How do you manage that? Uh, it's, be, it's because of the distance between the lights and, and uh, the gl gl glass. Yeah. So the guy that designed the scanner, he's, uh, actual, actually, um, he has a degree in optics, okay. so he knows his stuff, and he spent over a year designing the scanner so the actual light uh, situation in the scanner is optimal for, for book scanning. Um, so with the, with the, this is a new model with the old model. You, you see that the distance between the light and the glass is a bit a bit shorter. Yeah. So with some larger books, you would get reflections uh, on the upper side of the image. Oh, That's why with yeah. the new model we increase the distance. So basically, you don't have the problem anymore. And what's driving this at the back end? And the back end we have uh, well, we have one one reference solution, which is a software running on a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. So the cameras are attached to the Raspberry Pi. The software is written in Python. Um, and it can be controlled either via the command line, via a, a graphical user interface, or from another computer or your tablet yeah. uh, with a web interface. Is it not just possible to put it in and have a button that you press here on the... Uh, yes, yes. Uh, you see we have a, a foot pedal that's not hooked up yet. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you would basically uh, start the software, or you would have it running anyway on the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Then you would uh, create a new workflow for the book in yeah. the web interface, put your settings into it, and... Once you're done, you say, I want to start capturing now. And then an uh, event loop starts. It waits for presses on the, on the foot pedal. Yeah. And every time you press the foot pedal, two pages, two, the cameras will, will trigger, and you can capture an image. And, it, and then once you have the image done, it's a PDF file. Well, one, once you're done with the capturing, um, you can put the uh, book into a post-processing workflow. Yeah. So basically, um, this, this is done via a plug-in system, so you can basically uh, customize the workflow as you need it. For example, what I usually do is I binarize the image, okay. so it's not no longer grayscale or, or color, but black and white, which is very good for classical books where you don't have any much illustrations. Yeah. Then I crop the pages. So, for example, in this case, you see we have lots of white space around the page. Yes, yeah. And we crop that in software. Um, then, uh, once the pages are binarized and cropped, I run them through an OCR engine, so optical character recognition, so I get the text the actual ASCII-UTF-8 text yeah. from, the, from the page image. What's, uh, what OCR text do you use? Uh, this is also done via a plugin system. So basically, currently we have a plugin for Tesseract, yeah. but I'm planning to write one for Okropi, um, which is a new one. Interesting. New kit on the block. Um, so yeah, that's, that's also the nice thing about the software because almost everything is done in plugin. Yeah. We have a very, very small core, and everything from the device drivers to the interfaces to the post-processing stuff is all done via a Python plugin, plugin API. Yeah, very good. So, 
If you have any needs, you can do it yourself. <laughs> and what sort of uh, license is this whole thing? It's, well, uh, the, uh, I don't actually know the exact hardware license, but it's open uh, hardware, hardware yeah. and there are no patents involved. So we're strictly anti-patent anti also for the hardware. The software itself is AGPL, yeah. so um, free, free software as in speech. My wife would have a fit if I uh, came home with something like this, <laughs> largely because it's massive. It, it is quite it is, big. Yes. Is there um, any other solution that will be more... Uh, yes. Uh, actually, we have one guy from our community um, who is working um, on a automatic dewarping solution. So the, the idea is, in, it, in his project, um, he has laser, laser diodes that point at the page And you had me at lasers. <laughs> yeah. And what he's basically doing, he's, uh, I think it's like eight lasers that point to the page. And with those eight, eight lasers, you can uh, kind of make a grid on the page. Yeah. So you can basically see the physical outline ah, of okay. the page. What he then does is he takes one, one picture with, with the lasers out of the page image. Then immediately after that, a picture with the lasers on. And he increases the contrast. He only sees the laser lines. Then it runs through an algorithm that kind of readjusts the picture without it lasers. It, it dewarps it, yes. Oh, okay. And the idea is basically that you have a much smaller device. Yeah. So you don't need a plate anymore. You don't need a, a cradle anymore because yeah. you can just put a camera on a, on a, on a what's it called in English? Stativ? Uh, understand or something. Understand, exactly. And just point it downwards and just capture the images with the lasers. Okay, fantastic. Uh, yeah. There's also some ideas uh, about the, some new Android phones. Um, have uh, special image sensors that can capture some some of the uh, um, um, space uh, three-dimensional pictures. You know, yeah. like kind of sense the uh, can 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 take multiple pictures and kind of deduce from that how the how the room is structured. Yeah. And uh, one idea is to use that information to develop books as well, oh, okay. book pages. So we, we're always thinking about how we can make it smaller. Um, I'm actually more involved in the software side and not really the hardware side, but. There are people working on it, and uh, we try our best. Okay, well, thank you very much for um, for for this. Are you giving any talks, or uh, have me? You? I'm not. We're not giving any talks, uh, but the people who are writing uh, custom firmware for the cameras, they are yeah. giving a talk. It's okay. called CHDK. It's a custom firmware for Canon cameras, okay. with which you can do much more stuff than with the usual firmware. So, okay, fantastic. And uh, thank you very much for the interview, and uh, have a good show. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Hi, your name is? My name is Ulf Samuelsson. Hi, and uh, where are you from? I'm from Sweden, Stockholm. Excellent, and you're here with the Open Embedded Project. Could you tell our listeners what the Open Embedded Project is? The Open Embedded Project is a project that helps people to create uh, a complete Linux distribution. So you can build the kernel, you can build the bootloader, you can build the file system as well as the compiler to build everything. So why couldn't I just download Fedora, for instance, or Debian? Well, if you want to customize your system, it's much easier if you have total control. Here, it's very easy uh, to uh, extend uh, the file system with your own application. And it's really targeted towards embedded devices. So people that build embedded devices will find it easier to work with this time. And this is, uh, do you, this is supported by... Uh, Intel and other people, or is it? 
if you look at the total electronics industry for people that create electronic devices like microprocessors, uh, they all are using open embedded. I used to work for semiconductor companies and they are really focusing on this project. This was also the project that Nokia used when they were planning to use build a Linux-based uh, mobile phone. Okay. Or a variant of this open embedded project. Okay, so what, we're looking at the table here. What sort of things can you can you walk me through the table? Well, what we have here is different kind of development boards uh, for different kind of process. Intel, they have a lot of stuff here. Yeah. So, whenever you want to do embedded stuff, you want to have a board to run with. These are just examples that people in the project are working on at the moment. And that's a really small. So maybe we can maybe we can go over here and. Uh, so we're looking at some Intel Edison stuff. Yes, uh, that's a relatively new. Uh, that was released this year, wasn't it? Yes, I'm personally not involved with the Intel uh, Edison stuff. I usually work with ARM processors and oh, okay. power PCs. Yeah. So this is uh, Intel's attempt to yes to get into the uh, to the embedded market. Yes. Okay. Good. So what what are you using it for? Well, uh, Open Embedded or Jocto is used for wide things. Right now, I'm working with Jocto together with Ericsson Telecom. And they're using Jocto for a radio base station controller. So the core of the mobile network is built using Open Embedded. Oh, that's interesting to know. Very, that's actually very interesting to know. Um, so are you giving any talks here? Today or I'm not giving any talks. There are others that will speak about the Open Embedded and the Yocto project that was them. So it's been uh, the hot thing for the last couple of years. Incidentally, people that are working with commercial Linux nowadays, like Montavista and Wind River, they are also adopting Yocto. So it's really become the industry standard. Okay. They're also... Yocto is... What is the Yocto in... Well, some people say that Yocto is the marketing name what engineers call open embedded. Ah, (laughs) So, what you have in Yocto is a way of organizing your uh, build environment, but they're all basing it on the data that is provided by the open embedded project. So, if you want to build a Linux kernel in Yocto, you're using the open embedded recipe for Linux. Yeah, okay, I get you. Okay. Thank you very much for the interview and uh, good luck here with the rest of the show. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. We're talking to Christoph. And you're from what product? I'm not from the product, we're from the ham radio community. Are you now? Yes, we're uh, promoting ham radio here to the software guys, to the software geeks. So, what is ham radio? Ah, good question. Okay, uh, amateur radio is a technical hobby that makes it different from CB, which is more about talk. Amateur radio is a purely technical hobby, which deals with radio on all spectrums. It could be voice, which could be data, which could be data networks, uh, long long distance communication, short distance satellites, everything weird, everything special radio. But you need a special license in order to operate a ham radio. That's correct. You need to have a license to do that, and there's a technical exam linked to that. But for instance, in Belgium, where we are here, the technical exam is quite 
Well, for the lowest type of license, it's quite easy. Yeah. I have a daughter, which is 16, which is in uh, language direction, studies Latin. She's not technical at all and actually has a license. So okay. it's uh, possible for people with very technical, not that much technical background to actually get a license. Okay. And um, so what are, you, what are you showing here? What, what sort of equipment? Where do the two worlds meet? Well, my, my goal is to show that amateur radio connects with a lot of other hobbies. So we have some equipment. The radios, for instance, you have over there are radios for what they call the ISM bands. If you have a weather station or a wireless mouse or whatever. So this is the kind of radios that they use for that. Now, due to luck, let's call it that way, there's actually an overlap between ham radio bands and the ISM bands. Yeah. That means as being a ham, I can use more board power. I can use directional antennas. I can use all kinds of stuff, additional stuff. Which people who do not have do not have an ID, a ham license cannot have do. Which means I can walk, I can do dist- much more distance. I can do mesh networks. I can do everything geeky. What else there is? Um, other things that we have, for instance, the local club where I work, where I am part uh, member. Um, we there is also an astronomy club over there, yeah. and we work with them for things like uh, detection of meteors. So if a meteor enters the atmosphere, it reflects radio signals for a certain time. And we, there's a, a radio transmitter, and we use that. They use that, we use that to, to detect the, the meteor. Um, other things, for instance, we have technology, something called weak signal propagation, which is technology designed to pick out a very small signal below noise, below noise. So you mean that your noise is larger than your signal itself. And it turns out that the guys who do astronomy, who take pictures, use the same technique to take photographs of very weak signals or very weak uh, objects in the sky yeah. by taking multiple pictures and averaging out and to the same. so there's a lot of opera up with all, of, all kind of stuff and we're trying to show that ham radio is an interesting hobby also for people if you're interested in a lot of stuff if you're interested in electronics or if you just want to use it if you want canoeing and you want to use ham radio infrastructure or what else do you have how would you what's the best way to approach um, the hobby what, how would you how does somebody get into it <coughs> How to get into it? The, well, the organization is that you have local clubs, yeah. and on top of that, there's a national club. The best way, if you're interested in this, well, go to the, the website of whatever national club there is. You can probably find it if you do search for uh, ham radio in your country, you're going to find something. Yeah. And then you have a list of the clubs. The problem is that not all clubs are interested. Well, the club lives by the people who live, who are the member of that club. So you can have clubs where people are just interested in radio, long distance communication. And they uh, freak out because they have a connection with, uh, talk to somebody on Antarctica, yeah. which could be nice, but if you're into electronics, we'll probably not interest you that much. So it's, it's more interesting that you try to find or ask the, the organization, say, I'm interested in electronics, what club can I go to? But uh, it's a lot of hams who are a member of hackerspaces, yeah. or even universities and so on. So if you look around and probably... Well, if you're interested in radio, you're probably going to pop up somebody who likely have Exactly. Okay. What sort of um, free and open source software do you use in your hobby? In my case, I write codes. I have things for POCSAC paging. So I have uh, projects which I use to send POCSAC messages, paging, messa- sorry, paging messages. You know, those old things that nobody uses anymore. Yeah. That's, that's no reason not to still send them. Well, that means that but there are some old equipment that you can change the frequency, you can change them to the ham radio frequencies. Yeah. So there's a library of Arduino to interface Arduino with Poxa. I have um, software for digital voice. There's an amateur, an, an Australian uh, radio amateur 
codec David Rowe, who has written a voice codec, a low bit noise voice codec on 1,200 bits per second. Yeah. It's, um, if you want something else, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. Actually, the guy wrote an open source. I've developed a VHF modem for that. I've uh, done stuff, and it's all on GitHub. Okay, very good. Excellent stuff. Um, are you going to be giving talks or anywhere? Is there a website that you can send people to? Uh, I don't know. We actually have this, in, we have this input, info booth here but this year. We got this idea about two weeks ago, so it was kind of sudden. Yeah. I think one of the German guys going to give a demonstration, going to a talk in the uh, web from the SDR conference like this. Um, I don't know if it's going to be about ham radio. Especially, I think I've seen something. Um, Do you use GNU radio? A lot? Well, we use radio a lot. That's yeah. the basic for uh, software-defined radio, and yeah. um, of course that's. Big, big for what we do, for everything we do. Also for Radio Stony, by the way. We saw yeah. the meter detection, the, the software they, they use is also GNU Radio. So there's an overlap between everything. Okay, and that's uh, what we're going to do. Thank you very much for the interview and uh, good luck with the show here. You're welcome. And now we're coming over to Cody Project. Hi. Um, A.L. Leclerc from Cody Project. So the Cody Project, nobody's ever heard of that before. <laughs> what is it and uh, what has it been renamed from? Right. Um, well, I think most people still know us as XBMC, yep. uh, formerly Xbox Media Center, formerly Xbox Media Player. Um, and you changed your name. What, what was the reason for that? The, well, the reason to change our name was actually very simple. Um, we had some issues with piracy, uh, being associated with piracy. We, have an, we are an uh, open media center, um, and we have an open platform for uh, add-ons, um, which are written in Python. So it's possible to extend the functionality of the media center by writing a Python add-on. And many people have done so. We have a big repository of those add-ons, um, about 1,500. And those are all legal feeds. So we have a YouTube add-on showing YouTube feeds. We have several website add-ons showing website feeds or radio feeds, stuff like that. Um, what happened is that there's also people who are writing add-ons to access illegal media. So piracy video streams, um, which is fine with us. We don't have an opinion on that. It's an open platform. You can do what you want. But people were selling these add-ons on boxes pre-installed as XBMC. So we did have a problem with that because, of course, we want to continue the project. And we are actually a, a non-profit American foundation as well. Uh, like Mozilla is uh, for Firefox, we have the XBMC Foundation. So what we did was we tried to register our name, trademark it. Um, and we probably should have researched that better because there was another company that had a very similar name. And by law, of course, they're uh, obliged to protect their trademark, yeah. which is exactly what they did. Yeah. They objected against our trademark application um, and basically told us, you're not allowed to use this name, we don't want you to trademark it, and you have to cease using it. Okay. So, um, so what happened was we made an agreement with them, a legal agreement, um, that we were going to change our name, and we would stop using the old name for publicity so basically we wouldn't release a new software version now um, due to the agreement I'm not officially um, able to publicly tell which company this was 
And it doesn't actually matter. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, it it does need to be mentioned that they were very friendly uh, because they could have just annihilated the, the, the entire uh, program, uh, project, and they didn't. Okay. They, they gave us more than a year to change it, etc., etc. We're nice. still allowed to use the old website names, etc. And the new name is Cody. Cody. K-O-D-I. Kilo Oscar Delta Indigo for everybody out there. But just to tell our listeners, if they don't know what it is and what it does. Right. Um, we're in an open source media center. Yeah. Basically, we are an application that you can install on a variety of uh, operating systems. Um, basically, any operating system, really. If you have a video card that can do OpenGL. Okay. Um, the program itself is designed as uh, a media center, so it's the front-end GUI to access your media, which can be locally stored media or online media. Um, it uh, enables the fetching of metadata for this, uh, for this media. So, for instance, if you have local TV show episodes and movies, you can uh, automatically download metadata if you have named your files following a certain scheme, uh, several options available. Um, and it will scrape sites like thetvdb.org, which is an open site, um, IMDB, which is a closed site, uh, and, and many other sites to scrape metadata from that. Fanart.tv uh, to get pictures. TVDB to get uh, episode information and actor information, IMDB to get actor pictures, stuff like that, and then display this in a, in a nice GUI. So it's, it's when also you turn it on, you've got uh, three main headings, pictures, videos, music, programs. Yeah, you basically have uh, pictures, TV shows, movies, um, live TV, because we have interaction with uh, uh, PVR backends, like a TV headend. Yeah. So if you have a satellite box and you are able, or, or a satellite dish, and you're able to configure it in TV headend, basically turning it into a variety of streams, yeah. then we have an add-on that interfaces with our GUI, which you install in our GUI, which interfaces with this backend. So you get a nice uh, view of all your TV channels, what's on TV, and you can switch from our GUI as well. So and that we would also work with DVB-T, I guess? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Yes. I, have it on a, I run it on a Raspberry Pi. Yes. And, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I can't say anything more about it. It works. Raspberry Pi is basically uh, one of the most popular um, platforms of the moment, yeah. but it's it's a little bit limited in what it actually can do, especially in GUI update speed, or if you have, if you want to have one of the dynamic skins that we have that give a lot of extras, uh, you will notice that it's not as fast as an uh, Intel x86 uh, based uh, PC, like an Intel NUC or a Chromebook or anything like that. Okay, very good. Uh, so, what are the plans for the for the coming time? Um, well, we have several plans. We're working on. Um, uh, uh, creating the well to properly explain this what we can currently do is that if you have several instances of Kodi running we can share the library so you can either um, use the normal library system which is uh, SQLite and then have another system that interfaces with your first Kodi system so you get the same metadata there you don't have to rescrape it and everything it just uses the same library you can also use a library backend uh, like MySQL so you have a shared library over several versions. But what we can't currently do is to have um, a Kodi version running to do the scraping that doesn't actually have a GUI. 
Okay, that would be So nice. we are working on doing that because there are people who are running, uh, who are want to run Kodi as a scraping engine on low power platforms like um, NASA's, yeah. Synology NAS box. Uh, would be nice to have Kodi running there as the backend, do all your scraping and your library management there, and then just control that through JSON RPC with a remote control or from another Kodi device. So this is the direction we're going. It's one of the things that's changing. Um, we're, we're modifying, another thing that we're doing is we're taking existing code out of our code base and modifying it into binary add-ons. So that the existing code base um, becomes smaller um, and more maintainable. Because the code base is a cross-platform cross platform comp uh, uh, um, compilable uh, on about eight platforms right now. So we use the same code for all platforms. Oh, wow. What's it written in? Sorry? What's, uh, what language is it written in? Uh, it's mainly written in C, yeah. um, but there is... I think we use a total of like 28 languages, but I think, let's say, 90% of it is written in C Sharp and uh, C++. Okay, that's a lot. Okay, very good. Thank you very much for taking the time, no and uh, good luck with the new name. And uh, it's a great project. Everybody loves it. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.